So if you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing our study this morning on end times. My nephew and I recently took a trip to Midland to check out to Celebrate Recovery in West Texas to try to uh, duplicate some things here. It's a really effective ministry. So we were benchmarking that ministry, coming back into Fort Worth. Guess what we saw as we were on the way back to the city? Sign markers. Fort Worth, 180 miles. Fort Worth, 60 miles. Fort Worth, 30 miles away. And then when you get into the city, the signs about the city get bigger. Fort Worth Bank, Fort Worth this, Fort Worth that. There are sign markers that show you how far you are from the city. And once you get into the city, the signage gets bigger. And in the same way, all throughout Scripture, we are given sign markers to tell us how close we are to that seven-year season of intense sorrow. The day of the Lord. The day of wrath, it's called. The day of the Lord's wrath. A day of suffering as the world has never seen before and will never see again. And last week as we began this series in Matthew chapter 24, we saw that the sign markers are getting closer and closer and closer and closer. We looked at Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 through 14 as the disciples asked Jesus, what will it look like when we enter into that era, the last days, the end times, the season of great sorrow, this suffering, this exchange of the old eon to the new world order, this uh, introduction, this ushering in of Christ's kingdom, what will it look like? And Christ gave us some signs, not the end, but the beginning of the end. In other words, if somebody is pregnant, they are preparing to give birth And you know that the moment of birth is at hand when the contractions increase in what? Frequency and intensity. And Jesus gave us signs knowing that the birth of sorrow is at hand. He gave us birth pangs to look out for. And we know when these birth pangs increase in intensity and in frequency that we are about to enter into the city of tribulation. This seven-year season of God's wrath being poured out on sin, this seven-year period of tribulation, this seven-year period of, of utter destruction from below and above, from the forces of hell and the forces of heaven, we saw that the intensity and frequency of the contractions are drawing near in our era Some of these birth pangs, some of these signs that will usher in the beginning or the end, the beginning of the end, the signs are earthquakes, natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars. That's hot wars and cold wars. Desolation, an increase in disinformation. Professional uh, liars who, who, who spin their stories an increase in false Christ, an increase in false prophets, an increase in lawlessness, a decrease in loveless in, in love. When these things begin increasing in intensity and frequency, we know that the city of tribulation is very near. I did not find it a coincidence that just after last week's sermon, which was propelled by na- unprecedented natural disasters. Uh, Many people asked me, 
are we entering into the end times? And I've received many, many comments and many questions on the heels of these disasters, such as um, the most cost, the, the costliest U.S. national disaster, uh, right after a massive hurricane that slams into Florida. Right, all of this right before a massive earthquake, 8.2, hitting Mexico, the largest earthquake in their entire, uh, within the last century. And then right after that, this past week, on the anniversary of a massive earthquake in Mexico from 1985, for some 5,000 conservative estimate to 10,000 people were killed in Mexico City. On that anniversary, September 19th, here comes another earthquake that hits the city. And I think to date, near 300 or so have been killed. And they're still frantically looking for, for survivors within the rubble. And then this past week as well, we saw the, the disaster that hit Puerto Rico. Our disasters increasing in intensity and frequency. Our wars and rumors of war increasing in intensity and frequency. We know that we are entering into the end. Without a doubt in my mind, we are at the beginning of the end. Jesus said it's not the end, but it's the beginning of the end. And I would have liked to have comforted everybody who called me and asked me about end times and says, oh, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Go back to comfortable Christianity. Go back to cultural Christianity. Go back to playing the church. Go back to professing Jesus with your words and uh, being a Christian in name only, but not actually following in the footsteps of Christ. Go back to a comfortable faith where following Christ doesn't cost you anything. I would like to be able to say, go back to your com comfortable religion, but I can't do that because when we look at Scripture in the context of today, I believe with all my heart we are at the beginning of the end. So last week we talked about the beginning of the end on Sunday morning, and then last week at the 6 p.m. service we talked about the abomination of desolation. Go back and listen to that service. And today we are talking about what does this city look like? What does this seven-year period of tribulation look like? How is it going to unfold? So we will be in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, terror will make people faint. They will be worried about what is happening in the world the sun, moon, and stars will be shaken from their places. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. He will come with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Hold your head up with joy and hope. The time when you will be set free is very close. Isn't this an incredible passage? Look at the contrast of the tribulation. Jesus said, terror will make people faint. And as we enter into the birth pangs, the contractions of the birth of sorrow, as we enter into the beginning of the end, terror will make people faint, but not so with those who have the Holy Spirit in their heart, not so with followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his own, when these things take place, stand up, hold your head up with joy and hope. Is that not an incredible passage? All the world around us 
is curling up in a fetal position. All the world around us is fainting with terror, but not so with followers of Jesus Christ. We stand up, we hold our head up, because our redemption is drawing close. We will be set free. Now, this is how followers of Jesus Christ are to usher in to the beginning of the end of days. With our head up, standing up, with peace, with boldness, with joy, with hope, people all around us are dropping down in fear and in terror and in resentment and in bitterness and in lovelessness and in hatefulness. But followers of Jesus Christ stand up and we hold our head up with joy and hope. This is not only how we enter into the age of the beginning of the end as we are in now, but this is how we are to weather every storm that we are in. Even if it's not the great tribulation that you're currently going through, it might be your personal tribulation. As a follower of Jesus Christ, don't fall down in fear and in terror and in worry and in anxiety and in bitterness and in looking at people and having hatefulness and resentment. Don't faint in terror like the rest of the world. We're followers of Jesus Christ. Stand up. Hold your head up with joy and hope. I was watching a movie solely with Tom Hanks. Did anybody see that? A great movie, right? It was about the, the, the pilot of the airliner, Captain Sullivan. And his experience on that airliner, maybe you saw it on the news, he landed the plane in the Hudson River. Do you remember that? I remember watching that live. I thought, what's that plane doing in the middle of the river? And then all the passengers walk out and they're standing on the wings. And every one of them were safe. Every one of them were saved. It was an incredible, heroic uh, moment in history, American history. And then they made a movie about it starring Tom Hanks, Captain Sullivan or Sully. And I remember watching this movie. I was looking forward to it coming out. And as I was watching this movie, Tom Hanks was in the cockpit. And they're like turning on all their instruments. And I start feeling anxiety. Because I know what they don't know. (laughs) Something bad is about to happen. And then they they lift off and and they're in the cockpit. And they're just talking back and forth like pilots do. And the tension is increasing. I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to happen. It's about to happen. And then all the birds hit the engine and the engines go out and... And then I really am feeling anxiety, and, and I'm feeling nervous. And, and he's trying to land the plane, and, and then he, he gets it into, safely into the Hudson. But now the plane is starting to sink. And there's boats from all over the Hudson River. They're, they're, they're makeshift emergency vehicles, and they're making their way as quickly as they can to that plane. And the, the plane is filling up with water, and I'm thinking, everybody's got to you, you guys have to get out of there. You have to move. You have to hurry. You have to hurry. And then Captain Sullivan, he makes it out, but then he goes back in. I'm thinking, what are you doing? And the plane is filling up with water. I was like, why are you going in? And then it it dawns on me. I know what happens. I saw it live. He's okay. He's going to live. He's going to be fine. Everybody lives. There weren't any casualties. Everybody, I know what happens. I know how this thing ends. How this thing ends, everybody's safe. So I thought, oh, okay, it's good, it's good. So when I told myself that, kind of relaxed, and I chilled, and I didn't feel that anxiety, and I just finished watching the movie in the same way. 
when we look around at the beginning of the end and we see literally all hell beginning to break loose and we feel this tension and we feel this anxiety and the contractions will increase in intensity and frequency. The rest of the world will be fainting in terror, but not so with followers of Jesus Christ because we know how this thing ends. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. And Jesus will be victorious. He has won, and he is for us. That means as we enter into the season of the great tribulation being born, we have peace, we have hope, we look up as followers of Jesus Christ. Guys, we don't look for a date. September 23rd came and went. There will be new dates peddled off in the future, and those dates will come and go. Jesus said, no man knows the hour. And if by chance somebody did accidentally guess the right hour, I'll bet God would change his return just to mix it up. Because he said, nobody's going to know. So you might as well stop peddling off hours that Jesus is going to return or dates that he's going to return. In his humanity, he said, even the Son of Man doesn't know. So when you hear somebody say, Christ is here, Christ is there, don't run out into the desert and look up at the sun and burn your eyes. Because that's the date you know he's not coming back. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. We don't look for dates, we look for Christ. We don't look for signs, we look for Christ. We don't look for the Antichrist, we look for Christ. We hold our head up and we look for Christ with joy and with hope. And he is victorious. And he is with us. And he is for us. I know that makes five-point Calvinists a little nervous. He's like, no, no, he's for his glory. He is for his glory. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But the Bible tells us in Romans 8, make no mistake about it, God is with you. And God is for you. And God is ultimately victorious. And not only will the great tribulation that we are studying culminate with Christ's victory, and him establishing his peace on this earth and his perfect love on this earth. But your personal tribulation that you're currently weathering will culminate with his glory being manifest in your life. So stand up straight, hold your head up, stop looking back and your heart being filled with despair. Stop looking around and your heart being filled with anxiety. Stop looking ahead and your heart being filled with fear. Jesus said, stand up, hold your head up with joy and hope because you will be set free not only from the great tribulation, but from your personal tribulation. You will be set free. As our sermon progresses this morning, we will see how the great tribulation culminates. But let me just give you a little detail about how your personal tribulation will culminate. If you stand up, if you hold your hand, head up, if you trust in Christ, that he is with you, that he is for you, your personal tribulation will culminate in a manner that can't be described with words. Ephesians chapter 3.20 touches on it. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that you would dare ask or imagine. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 touches on it. And we know that all things, not some things, but all things, even your present personal tribulation, 
all things work together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Ecclesiastes touches on it. He will make everything, everything, even your present personal tribulation, he will make everything beautiful in its time. So stop looking back, stop looking around, stop looking ahead. That's how people behave who don't have the spirit of Christ in their heart and the word of God as their vision, as their view, as their instincts. Look up with joy and in hope and hope. The time when you will be set free will be very close. Luke chapter 21, verse 26 and 28. So with that, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. And let's look at what this tribulation will look like. Here's some descriptions of it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. And by the way, there's a, a more recent current interpretation of eschatology, which is basically events relating to end times, events relating to the return of Christ. There's uh, current interpretations of eschatology that say that we're already in the tribulation. That is just not so. That contradicts so many places in Scripture. We studied last week at our 6 p.m. service, and again, go back and listen to it. The title of the sermon is Abomination of Desolation. So we walk through Matthew chapter 24. Uh, it's on our website, hopeworks.us, or our Facebook page. Um, the seven-year tribulation is a literal seven-year increment of time. I won't go into it as we continue to move through uh, eschatolo eschatology events. Um, but here is some description of what the tribulation will look like. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Jesus said, For then, the seven-year period, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This seven-year increment is soon coming, and it will be accompanied with incredible cosmic disorder, with literally all hell breaking loose. Even demons coming up from hell, the spiritual will manifest and break into the natural. And then all men will know, oh, everything that is was born out of that which we cannot see. And everything in the natural realm is moved by the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm will invade with force the natural realm. And as Jesus said, there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. Cosmic disorder, stars, meteors colliding with earth. Demonic forces being unleashed. Natural disasters in unprecedented uh, fashion being unleashed upon humanity. John writes in Revelation 6, 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Revelation, uh, well, in, then in Zephaniah chapter 14, we read, At that time Michael, the great archangel, the warring angel, God's general, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. I hope sometime throughout this series so far, you've asked yourself, where will Christians be during this time of wrath being poured out onto earth? Where is the church? Where are the prayers of the saints? Where are the, where are the Christians? 
We're the spirit-filled believers called the church. We're going to talk about that tonight as we talk about the rapture. Um, so, I'd love for you to be here for that. It's, it's, an, it's an extremely important teaching on why the church will not be present in the midst of this outpouring of wrath in this final seven-year increment. Um, we go on to read in Zephaniah chapter 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It's called the great day of the Lord. It's called the day of the wrath. It's near and it's coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. God says, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Nobody right now is tasting the direct wrath of the Lord. Perhaps his indirect wrath. Any pain that we bring upon our lives, yes, spiritual warfare is valid and God disciplines his children. That's not wrath, that's love to cultivate our character. Any wrath that we experience is indirect as a result of just the consequences of sin. But on this day, sinners and a sinful humanity will stand toe-to-toe with God's direct wrath. It's why it's called the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on earth. Let me tell you something. You don't want to be here on that day. You want to be raptured up. You want to be with the church during this era. We'll talk more about the rapture tonight. But let's now talk about what the tribulation is going to be like. We'll go back to Matthew chapter 24. The tribulation will be a day of great suffering. And that is an understatement. So, Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, we talked about that last Sunday night, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And we enter into this wrath. Verse 16. And just as an aside, as we talked about last Sunday morning, Scriptures have a 100% success ratio when it comes to prophecies and fulfillment of those prophecies. 100% success ratio. Every prophecy that historically speaking could have been fulfilled has been fulfilled. Jesus has a 100% success ratio in his prophecies. Anything that could be fulfilled historically in its time frame has been fulfilled. 81% of the prophecies that could be fulfilled have been fulfilled. We are awaiting the 19% of prophecies in this season of eschatology, of end times. It's going to happen. God is the predictor of history, and history fulfills these prophecies. It's going to happen. You can be certain on it. 
We think that we are growing in enlightenment. Perhaps we are increasing in brilliance. But it's with great ignorance. Perhaps we're increasing with military might. And we're becoming a military giants. But we're moral dwarfs. This is, this is how God said that events would unfold. Atrophy is so evident in humanity. As our morality, as our lawlessness, as our lovelessness increases. And it's going to culminate with this seven-year season of the tribulation. Let's read verse 16. This time of great suffering. Then let those who are in Judea, and right here, Jesus shifts his focus from the church to the Jews. Right here, we see a Jewish rabbi talking to Jewish followers about Jerusalem. And that's because, and this is a little sneak peek of tonight, because the church has been raptured out. We are gone. You see, when Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross, he drank the bowl. He drank the cup of God's wrath upon sinfulness. And when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were forgiven. We are clothed with God's very righteousness. We receive the Spirit of Christ. We are God's child. And we are safely hidden in the shadow of the cross of Christ's mercy and grace. So when the day of God's wrath is born upon earth, why would his children incur that wrath? If we receive the free gift of eternal life and trusted in Christ's payment for our sins. You mean God is angry about sin? Oh, it breaks his heart. God is holy. And sin is everything inconsistent with God's holiness. An example that might help you wrap your heart and mind around this. Imagine that one of your family members as a child was horrifically abused by a serial killer and was abused in every horrific way imaginable before they took their life. Would you be upset? Of course you would. Would you want justice? Of course you would. Is that a lack of love or mercy? No! It's a fullness of love and mercy because your heart breaks for your loved one who was so abused and you want justice. That's just just that is fueled by love for that family member. Do you need to forgive the person? Yes, to heal and move on, of course. But you love that family member and you are due justice because that is an incredible wrong. So the day of the court arrives. And witness after witness and eyewitness after eyewitness are brought into the courtroom. And it's obvious that this person is guilty. And they even confess to it and say they would do it again if they had the opportunity. And you're waiting for the judge's um, sentence. And how would you feel if the judge said, You know what? We're just going to let this thing slide. I mean, come on. Who hasn't done something wrong, right? Boys will be boys, girls will be girls. We're going to let this slide. And you guys need to get over it. 
and we're going to hope the best for this person. How would you feel? Would you feel that that was a good judge? Would you feel like an injustice has been visited upon your family? Now, in the same way, God loves us so much, and He is absolutely holy. And the Bible says the wages or the consequence of sin is death. And there will be a day of reckoning when His justice, and as the Bible says, the day of wrath will be poured upon sinful humanity. But the essence of the cross of Christ is that Jesus paid for our sins so that we wouldn't have to pay for our sins. When Jesus said, let this cup pass from me, He was talking about the abomination of the sins of the world and God's wrath and punishment upon that sin. He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. And then we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the very righteousness of God. So why as followers of Jesus Christ would we be here in the seven-year tribulation when God's wrath is being poured out upon humanity if we've already trust in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins, and we are clothed in the forgiveness and righteousness of God, no, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that God will deliver His church from that day of wrath. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, that God's church will be delivered from that time of tribulation and testing. Which is why Jesus says over and over in Matthew chapter 24, watch, be ready, I'm coming soon, I'm coming quickly. And that's to whisk my church away from this day of wrath that's going to visit humanity. That's the rapture, which is a separate moment from the second coming of Christ. And we'll talk about those tonight. So the day of wrath, verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And by the way, Revelation has 22 chapters. The first three chapters are written to the church, the seven churches, the church at Philadelphia, the church at Laodicea, to the church at Smyrna. Um, On and on and on, these seven churches. It's all about the things that you have seen, Christ's glory, the things that you see, that's the church age. And the seven churches, the word church, I believe, in those first three chapters is mentioned 19 times. And then beginning in Revelation chapter 4 onward, the church is not mentioned in that entire tribulation era all the way until Revelation chapter 19 when the saints return with Christ. Why is the church not mentioned? Why is there not instruction to the church and how to endure this day of wrath? Because the church is not here. We've been whisked away in an event that we call the rapture, being caught up with the Lord in the air. And this is the believer's blessed hope, as the scriptures say. Which is why Jesus here turns his attention as a Jewish rabbi to Jewish disciples talking about Jerusalem, verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Because you can't move as quickly and you better run if there's any hope of living. Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No and never will be. And let's stop there for a moment and parallel this with Revelation chapter 6. The tribulation 
It's very systematic. It's very incremental. It's very categorical. There are first seven seals that are opened. And each of the seals unleashes great wrath. Then there are seven trumpets. And each of the trumpets unleash great wrath. And then there are seven bowls. And each of the bowls pour out great wrath. So, Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And the day of wrath begins. Verse 2. And now we enter into the four horsemen. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came to conquer Is that Jesus? It looks like Jesus. Let's read it again. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Yeah, it's supposed to look like Jesus. And that's what Jesus was talking about. People are going to come in my name and say, there's Christ, there's Christ, there's Christ. He says, don't believe it. When I come on the second coming, well, the rapture church, don't worry about it. I am going to, with might and force, whisk you out of here. You'll be absolutely impervious to gravity as you are translated in the twinkling of the eye. And there is going to be um, Christ and false Christ, and many false Christs are already here, but the Antichrist. Revelation 13 talks about it. He speaks great boasts and great arrogant things. He'll be empowered by Satan himself. He is going to come, and he will be on a white horse. That's figurative language. That means he is going to look like me, but he is not going to be me. And he has a bow, but notice, he didn't have arrows. He had a crown, but if you look at the Greek, it's the reefy, grassy, leafy kind of crown, not the gold crown. He looks like me, but he is not me. He has a bow, but no arrows. How does he conquer with a bow without arrows? Well, we read in Revelation chapter 13, he is a smooth talker. He is empowered by Satan, who Jesus said is the father of lies. And when Satan speaks, he is empowered by Satan. And when he speaks, Jesus said, Satan is lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language because he's the father of all lies, and the father of all lies will be empowering this antichrist. He conquers with a bow without arrows because he conquers with his smooth tongue. He will conquer with negotiations. He will be able to do what Carter, Reagan, Bush Sr., Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, and our current president have not and will not be able to do, and that is to bring peace to the Middle East through negotiations. And that's going to represent the first three and a half years of the tribulation. It will be a false peace. And that will cease. That will be shattered. That false tranquility will be shattered into a trillion pieces when the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies, so the temple will be rebuilt, and something called the abomination of desolation takes place, and he sets up an image of himself, and he makes everybody worship him. And something interesting as an aside, if you study Christian eschatology, and if you study Muslim eschatology, they are mirror opposites of one another. 
In Muslim eschatology, Christ Jesus returns to set the world straight to say that he's not the Messiah, that he didn't really die on the cross, that that was somebody else, he was whisked away, that uh, he didn't really die, he didn't really rise from the grave, and that Muhammad is the guy. Look to him. And there is going to be a great violent persecution on anybody that doesn't profess that lie from the pit of hell. So when I look at these 22 or however many it was Christians on the beach in the Middle East marched in their, uh, their, their prisoner-clad uniforms that ISIS dressed them up with and kneeled down and each had their ISIS soldier dressed in black with their sword and they were beheaded because they were Christians and these martyrs' last words were Jesus, I think you get a, a glimpse of what this three and a half years is going to look like. Not only will demons be unleashed from hell, Not only will God's wrath be poured out upon the earth, I believe this religion will be more maniacal, uh, more violent, more widespread than ever before. And it will also be a time of sweeping revival. Because people are going to be looking at the book of Revelation and they're going to be looking around them and people are going to come to Christ by a multitude. Like never before in history, there will be a sweeping revival. Well, who's preaching? Well, there are two Jewish prophets who return and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going to see what's going on around them and they're going to look at scriptures and they're going to get saved. I remember after September 11th, 2001, when the planes hit the World Tower... I had this Friday night ministry. It's a coffee house ministry. That coming Friday night was packed out. It was packed out wall to wall from the front to the back for an entire year. Every Friday night, people came to Christ. Why? Because they were scared. They looked around at the, 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 the events that were happening and the war that we were entering into. And when people look around and see the events that are happening and hear these Jewish prophets preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be getting saved. So it will be an unparalleled time of persecution and it will be an unparalleled time of sweeping revival. So let's go back to the first seal. This guy's the Antichrist on the white horse. After the white horse, we see a second horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. You see, the first rider conquered, but without violence, because the second rider takes peace. And nation will rise up against nation. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 is a good cross-reference if you want to go a little bit deeper on the event that modern nations will play in this season. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and it... And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for Daenerys... And three quarts of barley for Daenerys did not harm the oil and wine. This is famine. We're talking about just a a jar of wheat going for a 
a day wage or a week wage. It's in time of incredible famine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. It's not just pale, it's like a pale green, it's death. And its rider's name was Death. You see the train of thought? Here comes the Antichrist, and behind him is war, and behind him is famine, and behind that is death. And behind death is hell. And they were given authority over a fourth of the men. And to those who think that we're currently in the tribulation, has a fourth of the world been killed through end time type events? No, of course not. This is a horrific season to come. With our population of some 7 billion people, we're talking about 1.7 billion people being killed in this era. In verse 9, when I opened the fifth seal, I saw under, under the altar souls that had been slain for the word of God, for the witness, for they had borne. Again, after the church is whisked away and the Jewish evangelists begin preaching, this will be a time of unprecedented revival, but also a time of unprecedented persecution. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shakes, its winter fruit was shaken by the wind, and the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And can't you just picture the reckless release of nuclear arms. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave and free hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide from us. Men and women, boys and girls, will seek death in these days and not be able to find it. And they're saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? And from there, we go on to the seventh seal, and then the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, and from there, guys, those seven seals are just the beginning. It increases in intensity. Let me just touch on this, and I'll close out. Revelation chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven. This is rich with symbolism. Who is a star? We can cross-reference this with Isaiah chapter 14, when Satan fell from heaven, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Is this figurative? Is this symbolic? Is this... 
Are these demons that are unleashed as the spiritual invades the natural? Verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree. Why? Because they were to feed on the flesh of men. But only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads as people are coming to Christ in this season. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of the scorpion as it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. You cannot run them. On their heads was what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. This connotates wisdom. You can't outsmart them. Their hair was like women's hair. This connotates seductiveness. There was an allure. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They are violent. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. You cannot overcome them. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. It's not just being stung by one scorpion-type creature. Hundreds of thousands of them. They have tails and sting like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. This is Satan. The thing about eschatology is that once you answer one question, it opens up many other questions. And there's not time to answer all the questions in a Sunday morning setting. I encourage you to pray and read Matthew chapter 24. Pray for wisdom and read Revelation. Some of you are like, I've never read Revelation. Revelation scares me. I don't understand Revelation. We're blessed by reading all the Bible. But only the book of Revelation does Scripture tell us that there is a super blessing upon those who read and teach this book. Read it. Does any one pastor, does any one theologian, does any one commentary have all of its eschatology 100% correct? Of course not. They don't all agree, and it's okay to agree to disagree in eschatology. But it's taught over and over and over. Major portions in the New Testament. An entire 22 books of Revelation. Major chapters in the Old Testament, major books of the Bible in the Old Testament are all devoted to eschatology, which means we are to read it. We'll understand some of it, we won't understand all of it, but this is the essence of it. And this is what Christ wants us to gather from it. Be ready. Be ready. You see, if we just fill our mind with facts, and if we just fill our minds with theology, but our hearts aren't stirred to awaken our spiritual lives and to live holy, to live sanctified, to go after lost people, to look for our soon-coming king, then we've missed it all. It doesn't matter if you can out-debate somebody, whether you're pre-mid or post-tribulationist. If your heart doesn't long for your soon-coming king so that you say, Oh, Lord, come quickly, then you've missed the purpose of eschatology entirely. Be ready. I believe we are at the beginning of the end. Are you 
ready. There's an unprecedented day of suffering, but it's all submitted to God's sovereignty. Verse 22 of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, and if those days had not been cut short, who cut them short? God. Not one seal was opened, not one seal was closed, not one bowl was poured out, not one trumpet was sounded, apart from the sovereignty and the will of God. All things are submitted to His will. And God's will brings all things into a culmination of His glory and His saints. Deepest joy, deepest delight, deepest good. It's a day of terrible wrath, but it's a day that's subjected and submissive to the sovereignty of God, who works all things according to His will. For His glory and our deepest joy and delight. Which is why we don't look behind us, we don't look around, we don't look ahead. We look up at the one who works all things together for His will. And we trust Him because He is good. And He is perfect in holiness and perfect in love and perfect and just. And He, the creator of all things, longs for His church. And He longs for His church to long for Him. And to understand eschatology is to long more for Christ. There's a story of a girl who was sitting at a train station. She was waiting for her fiancé to come home from war. And there was a train conductor sitting in his booth. The train conductor had everything lined out. He knew when the train would arrive. He knew where the train was coming from. He knew which track it would be on. He knew when the, track, the train traded tracks. He knew what trains it would pass. He knew exactly when it would be here. And he was yawning. He was falling asleep. It was business as usual for him. But the fiancé was waiting for the love of her life to return from war so they could get married and live happily ever after. They were both waiting, but they were waiting very differently. The purpose of end times, the purpose of eschatology, isn't to fill our mind with facts so that we wait like the train station conductor. It's to fill our heart with longing so that we wait for the one who holds everything in his control, who longs for us, who shelters us from wrath, who's coming for us, for his greatest glory and our deepest joy. How are you waiting for the return of your Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, your soon-coming King? Would you stand with me, please? How are you waiting? Now, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus goes into great detail in talking about how to wait. He goes from this incredibly long dissertation in Matthew chapter 24. Many people ask Jesus' questions throughout his entire ministry. Uh, when will this happen? Uh, why is this happening? Uh, who are you? And why did you do that? And why did you do that? And when are the end of the days? Jesus was asked many questions throughout his ministry. This is, without a doubt, the longest answer he ever gave to any question. End times. When's he coming back? What's it going to look like? Because he wants for us to wait for him with longing. All of chapter 24, except for the first verse, all of chapter 24 is read. It means Jesus is answering 
when I'm coming back, what the last days will look like. Be ready. He's saying, be ready, be ready, be on watch, be ready, be ready, be ready. Then he goes into Matthew chapter 25. Again, it's all red. And he gives back-to-back word pictures, back-to-back analogies about people waiting and how to wait. And how do we wait? We wait with longing in our heart. We wait with love in our heart. In practical terms, wait by turning from your idols and returning to Christ. You say, well, I don't have any idols. Yes, you do. We have the same idols that they had in Rome. Uh, Rome worshipped the idol Bacchus as the idol of drunkenness. Many of you guys worship that idol. Uh, There's the idol of Aphrodite, Venus. That's the god of lust. Our culture worships that idol. There's the idol Mars. That's the god of violence. Our culture worships that idol. There's the idol Diana, the the god of the hunt, the ambitious and achievement-oriented worship that idol. There's the god of Sophia, where we get our word sophistication, the goddess of knowledge and intellect. and We worship that idol. We turn from the worship of all idols and we return to Christ. This is how we wait properly. You turn from your idols and you return to Christ. We fully surrender and we ask God to fill us with His Holy Spirit. And one more thing. We go after souls. Are you ready? Okay. Are your friends ready? Are your families ready? You know that saying, gosh, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. That's the tribulation. We don't wish the tribulation on our worst enemy. Are they ready? Are they ready for the return of Christ? So, this is why, as Mason said earlier, we have an invite Sunday next week. We're all assembling with our friends who need Christ. We're starting a series, Breaking Chains, Spiritual Warfare, warfare, How to Walk in Freedom. It does actually have the service times on the back, so give these to a friend or just call them and get them here. Um, And our altar call, I want to invite you to come forward and to surrender your idols and ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit and say, God, use me to ready my friends, my family, my enemies. For your return. Would you bow your heads with me, please? How many of you have an idol you need to repent of? Raise your hand. All right. All right. Praise God. You can put your hand down. How many of you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you have a new heart, so that you have victory over these idols? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. You're going to need to do some work with the Lord. Just come down and repent and ask Him to fill you. Right? How many of you need to have some friends and family and enemies in your life that need to be ready? Raise your hands. Okay. So with that, let's just flood the altars and let's repent, pray to be filled with the Spirit, and pray, God, use me. So the altars are open.